I like Hot Take Down as like a career doctor. You know, we just come in and, and fix people's games. Here's what you want to do. <laughs> you cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, uh, see, don't answer. I, this, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics doing. don't work at all. They're just a no, crap to no, some no. people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's Sports Podcast. I'm Chapter Matlin, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's a full house today. We got Neil Statman Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Chad. Uh, good to see you. Good to see the good Mets. Good to see Mets you, hat. Still too. On your hat, on your head. Really impressive that you're soldiering on through this dark, dark season. You know, you got to stick with uh, the team that you brought to the dance. Dance with the one that brung you. And, Something uh, like that. And that other voice you hear is Kate Fagan, ESPNW columnist and Hot Takedown's Record holder for number of hot dogs consumed in a 15-minute time span. Kate, two? what's your two secret? Two was the record? No. I didn't say that. Oh, okay. I mean, that's the most I've eaten in a 15-minute span, so I, I hold the record. What's your secret? Only just com- battling against people who don't eat many hot dogs, apparently. Do you soak the buns, or are you a non-soaker? Never. I, I feel that's cheating. Oh, there's something Ooh. to exploit there. Neil. Yeah, f- fighting words Come for forward. the other uh, major league eaters out there. Uh, also with us in the studio, it's Kyle Wagner, five thirty eight sports writer. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Chad. Kyle, what's your what's your hot dog record? Uh, not two, but more than two. <laughs> Slightly. Legitimately, how what's how many hot dogs have you actually eaten in fifteen minutes? Like, have you ever had more than one hot dog in fifteen minutes? In fifteen, I, I don't know about fifteen minutes. In like thirty minute period, probably about ten. Oh wow! Wow. All right, so Kate, you've just been stripped of your title, just like that. <laughs> I thought I had like an ironclad grip on it with that too, but now here comes Kyle with no, ten in thirty minutes. Teenagers can eat anything, man. Like I was like 120 pounds eating like whatever I wanted. <laughs> eat off, you I didn't and get me, to say Kyle. Hi, hi, Chad. <laughs> hi, Kate. Hey, Kyle is here to help us through the NBA free agency period, which has started with quite a bang, and still probably has a few more dominoes to fall, which we'll talk about. Later in the show, along with our SIG dig, of course, as well. But first, let's still stay within the NBA and talk about an NBA rumor, a headline to start the show. Carmelo Anthony of the New York Knicks is apparently willing to waive his no-trade clause, potentially to move to the Rockets or the Cavaliers. We've talked about Carmelo on the show in the past. I believe in the past we tried to figure out the best team for him. Neil, you, you ran some numbers around like what, what he needs around him. Do the Cavs or Rockets fit what Carmelo needs? Well, so when we did this research, I think it was back in January around New Year's, we tried to find, based on players who played like Carmelo at the same stage of their careers, so we're talking about guys that use, you know, have a super high usage rate and aren't necessarily very efficient scorers or very good defensive players at that point, to be a little charitable, <laughs> tried to find... You know, what what teams in terms of past supporting cast for players like that were able to get the most out of playing with a star like that? And the ones that were able to do that were, you know, some of Kobe Bryant's supporting cast, Alex English, Mark Aguirre, people like that. The ones that weren't were like Anton Jameson's supporting cast and also uh, more than a few of Carmelo's own supporting cast from the Knicks in recent years. And the differential between the two was basically you have a lot of defenders around the place 
player? Do you have a lot of shooters around Those the player? Those are good, defenders and shooters. Yeah. Right. You want to have those. And then to a lesser extent, do you have people who you know are kind of post scorers or just in some kind of interior scoring presence to kind of counterbalance a guy who takes a lot of mid-range shots and you know tries to work with a ball on his hand from the perimeter? And so in terms of the fits, uh, and, and maybe you could speak to this better than I could, Kyle, but you know, I think the Cavs are still a team that were not very good defensively last year, and that kind of plays into the question of whether or not you want to throw Carmelo into that and also you know, kind of see what he does to uh, probably drag down that defense. But then you know, Houston also, James Harden not known for being the greatest defender. Uh, Chris Paul will help, though. So I'm curious what you think, Kyle, about the fits there or elsewhere. So I think the thing with both of those teams is that the guy who would be coming in to replace, which would... Uh, in all likelihood, be Ryan Anderson on the Rockets or Kevin Love on the Cavaliers. Neither of them are like very good defenders either, and like both of them are thought of as being like these very good outside spot up shooters. That's their role for these teams. But Carmelo, when he's allowed to be a spot up shooter, shoots about last season. I think it was fifty nine effective field goal percentage on spot up shots. That's pristine. That's better than Kevin Love. That's about as good, I think, as Ryan Anderson. And so Melo can fill those roles, and like we. We've talked about FIBA Mello in the past, so Mello when he's playing on Team USA, and he's allowed to have a usage percent that's much, much lower than it is when he's you know playing for the Knicks or for the Nuggets before that. His career low is 29, I think, for usage percent, 28 and a half. When he's been at his best for Team USA, he's been under 25. So like that doesn't seem like a lot, but like usually he's at like 34, 32. And that's just a lot fewer possessions that like the defense is looking at him, and he'll be able to do that on these teams. So maybe I had it backwards when I did this back in January, and instead of trying to find guys that are spot-up shooters and role players around Carmelo, maybe you turn Carmelo into that spot-up <laughs> shooter and then free up uh, someone else on the team. Yeah, because when I think of the last third of Carmelo Anthony's career and whether or not it will be defined as successful or not, I assume it will be a Carmelo Anthony that we haven't yet seen. And I, there, I don't know what examples we actually can come up with of a player with the kind of usage rate and poor defensive history that then in the final third of his career perhaps changes his game a little bit in order to be more productive on a roster. I mean, the, the quickest I can think of it has, it's not really Carmelo Anthony, but Having covered Andre Iguodala at the Sixers, he did change his game offensively a decent amount when he moved to the Golden State Warriors. His defense has always been phenomenal, and his passing has always been strong from that's the beginning of his career. That's also partly because of the, the role end. he was playing on the Warriors that's what versus I'm saying. on the Sixers. And yeah. that, that's what I mean for when it comes to Carmelo Anthony. If I'm thinking about where he goes and plays well, he doesn't look like Carmelo Anthony anymore. Right. So, I mean, to me, it's kind of like Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce was throughout his career like a better defender than Melo, but never known as like you know a lockdown guy. And then, you know, Ray Allen and KG come in, and all of a sudden, you know, the Tom Thibodeau offense with KG anchoring is, you know, taking care of the defense. And Ray Allen is, you know, taking care of the outside shooting, and Paul Pierce just gets to be Paul Pierce. And so if Melo can go somewhere where, you know, the defense is taken care of by, let's say, Clint Capella or Tristan Thompson, the playmaking is handled by someone else, so, you know, the ball can stick in Carmelo's hands and that's okay. Like, it seems like there are fits at these, um, in these other teams that, you know, he can, you know, find a role like that. Okay, let's leave our conversation about Carmelo there. And before we keep going with our NBA discussion, let's get a word from this week's sponsor. Hot Take Down This Week is sponsored by Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. To do that, they have partnered with over 150 local farms 
fisheries and ranchers across the United States. Blue Apron is affordable for less than $10 per person per meal. Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. And Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they will make it right. Upcoming meals from Blue Apron, seared chicken and creamy pasta salad with summer squash and sweet peppers, creamy shrimp rolls with quick pickles and sweet potato wedges, fresh basil fettuccine pasta with sweet corn and cubanelle pepper, chili butter steaks with parmesan, potatoes, and spinach. All that sounds delicious. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash takedown. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. Go to blueapron.com slash takedown. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, now to free agency at large, where lots has happened. It's been a super interesting week or so. It's hard to believe that it's only been a week. It hasn't even been a week, has it? It's Mm-mm. just been since Friday, technically. Although things got off to a, a fast start with the with the trade of Chris Paul to the Rockets to join James Harden. That happened a couple of days before the deadline. And then since the deadline has opened up, Seven Curry is signed to a Supermax deal with Golden State. Drew Holiday has stuck around in New Orleans. Blake Griffin sticks around in Los Angeles with the Clippers. Taj Gibson goes to that very interesting team that's being built in Minnesota, which I hope we can talk about shortly. You've got some smaller signings like Sean Livingston, Amir Johnson, Kyle Korver. Just a lot, a lot going on. J.J. Redick is with the Sixers. Where to even begin? I think let's start with actually not a signing. Let's start with Paul George, who joined Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City for weeks. It felt like the Paul George trade had been rumored not to Oklahoma, but instead to either the Cavs or the Lakers or the Celtics. And then out of nowhere, your boy, Sam Presti, Kyle, came swooping in. Kyle, you have written at length about Sam Presti not figuring out how to surround his stars of his teams with good players. Has this changed you on Presti? I have written at length about Presti being unable to surround his stars with good role players, which still this isn't really. <laughs> this is just another um, star. He, he found another star, which is like a great talent for a GM, but like now we're going to see like the rest of the team building finding, you know, scorers and shooters to, you know, to put around them. But no, this is like a huge win for Oklahoma City, obviously. Yeah, yeah, we actually had Ramona Shelburne on our radio show over the weekend, and she first reported the Paul George trade, and she said she had a moment where she didn't want to report it because she thought she was missing something involved in the trade. Because like, it was too good yeah, she, for the Thunder. she was like, where's the, where's the draft pick? Like, she just... You know, as as an NBA reporter, you're always like, does this make common sense first and foremost before I report it? Even though she had all the sources in line, she's like, I just didn't want to report it because I thought that there should be at least a minimum of one draft pick. And real quickly, Sabonis, uh, Sabonis and Oladipo went to Indiana in exchange for and no uh, draft George. picks. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of part of what seems to be a growing trend of teams trading away their superstars and get, not really getting like great returns. But these, with the Jimmy Butler deal right, being exactly. the previous one. Yeah, and, and I don't know if that's just the market now or is that a consequence of some of the things that have gone on with the cap increases recently or I what, think what's going on there? A big part of it is the designated player thing, which we call the Supermax, where these guys are eligible for $200 million contracts. So DeMarcus Cousins before that, before even Butler, you know, got Buddy healed and, you know, some, you know, yeah, that was pennies also. on the dollar. And 
like these teams don't want to pay two hundred million dollars for like the tenth best player in the league. Like they'll pay that for you know LeBron or you know KD or Steph, obviously. But like that's kind of the the supermax working where you know they don't want to spend all this money on like I guess a mere superstar. Well, what is a? I get the point where you say, well, Paul George can't single handedly bring you an NBA championship. Therefore, is he worth two hundred million? But it still, to me, doesn't explain fully why you get so little for him. I understand you don't want to pay the big money, but by all accounts, all reporting, well, there Boston was willing to throw multiple draft picks at Indiana. And I get that you don't want to keep him in, in the Eastern Conference, but there seemed to be something much more emotional than logical at play when it came to Pritchard, Kevin Pritchard, dealing Paul George and getting so little of value simply to ship him to the Western Conference. So when you say emotion over logic, and uh, probably, uh, is that him not wanting to deal with Danny Ainge, who, you know, can apparently be kind of a handful to deal with? Wanting to get rid of Paul George and wanting to have it done because he knew Paul George didn't want to come back. When maybe you get more for Paul George, even though you don't want to see him around Indiana, if you let him play the season and you trade him at the NBA trading deadline, when teams who really need that guy at the last minute are willing to pay more for it, but you then you have to deal with having Paul George around for part of the year when you know he doesn't want to be there. So you're emotional there and saying, I want him gone. So one theory that I've seen floated around, at least for the Boston trade, um, because reports were, I forget who had the reports, but it was three non-premium picks from Boston and two starters. One was Jay Crowder. We think the other one was Avery Bradley. And the idea was, well, is that trade going to be there if they don't sign Gordon Hayward? And so, like, there, there's a diminishing market for Paul George because all these other super teams are kind of figuring out, like, what they want to do. So if the Cavs, let's say, get Carmelo Anthony, well, that's one less team that, you know, can fl- slot in Paul George. So there is kind of a reason for them to be acting as soon as possible. Maybe they acted too and soon. Probably they did, but there's a reason there, I think. It's possible that Sabonis and Oladipo hold the value of more of a pick basically you know as opposed to Crowder and Bradley or something like that that it may be that Indiana for whatever reason felt so high on them that that was enough Oladipo having gone to school in Indiana maybe you think you can sell some tickets there I'm not sure yeah I don't know I mean Oladipo to me isn't like oh my god we're gonna sell out our arena because (laughs) Oladipo's playing for us now I mean I, I by all accounts I think that you want draft picks no matter what even if you're getting those two guys I don't know any I haven't seen anyone and Kyle correct me if I'm wrong who thinks oh Indiana got value in any way for Paul George, even if you're talking about the the market diminishing for him as as free agents have signed places. No, Oladipo's twenty five. Like he's gonna get a little better maybe, but like he kinda is what he is. Uh Dominus Sabonis is a fine player, but like he had a rough rookie season kind of. Like they were using him as a starter, but like he would only play like eight minutes in a lot of those games. So, Neil, this is a duo in George and Westbrook that is very different than the duo in Harden and Paul, it seems like in which th- the skills are complementary as opposed to duplicative because with Paul with Paul and Harden, you have two heavy usage ball handlers who I, they're okay off the ball and we've seen them be okay off the ball in the past. And so yeah, especially it, with Harden, less so with Paul. And that's kind of the most interesting question about that is just how is this guy who's like the ultimate control freak, point guard, slows down the pace, things like that to try to you know run the offense. How's he going to deal with that more op- wide open Houston system? And so it, it just. It's interesting to me that teams are that we have two teams competing in the same conference for the same kind of Warriors challenger slot, and they've gone about things in a very different way. It seems like, and do we have a sense 
for which is the better way before they set foot on on the court? I don't know. I mean, so, yeah, George and Westbrook are very different players, and there isn't as much of an overlap of what they do well. For instance, Westbrook had, I want to say, one of the highest, if not the highest, assist percentages of any player ever in a season. He had, he assisted on 57% of teammate buckets last year. Paul George only assisted on 16% uh, of teammate buckets. And so they both have high usage rates, but in terms of how they got that usage, different uh, you know, playing styles. But at the same time, you know, Paul and Harden together, you would think would be a more, you know, just have more talent in the in the two players involved than Westbrook, who is, you know, in our opinion, I think we came to the conclusion that he deserved to be MVP. Uh, we said Harden, our, but Kyle was probably right. In I think I said West. I think you and me, Kyle, both were on Team Westbrook. But I mean, yeah, we're talking about a guy that legitimately could be considered the best player in the league. And then Paul George is sort of, you know, I think he might be a little overrated by most observers and that he's not you know quite at the same level of like a team changing type of player you know all by himself but at the same time really good player so you know it's an interesting combination I don't know what that says about the two teams though what their path is because the Warriors have a little bit of everything you know they they've they've got some uh, players who are as good as Chris Paul and play a little bit like him and they've got players as good as Paul George who play you know uh, a little like him so I don't I don't know how this moves the needle as much necessarily. So I, I also think that the usage thing is maybe a little overblown because we're also coming off of last season, or not last season, two seasons ago now, where Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant were both over 30 usage percent. On the same team. On the same team and, like, took the Warriors to seven games and, you know, almost went and, you know, took it, probably could have taken that title. So, I mean, this is a thing that, like, we've seen work and Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook didn't have, like, the same kind of, you know, Kevin, like there were possessions where Kevin Durant would be running the high pick and roll, like he would just be doing isolations, and Westbrook would just be standing on the wing. Like they weren't helping each other, you know, accentuating each other's talents the way that you know these players I think probably can. There's no doubt that Kevin Durant is a better individual player than Paul George, but to your point, Kyle, like there's something interesting to me about how Paul George, you, his style of play, and how it could complement Russell Westbrook in a way that Kevin Durant didn't towards the end of their tenure together at the Oklahoma City Thunder, because there's no doubt from everyone who's reporting out of Oklahoma City that Russell Westbrook is dying to change his game and to and there's there's no way he could continue at the pace that he just finished his last season at and so the deference that he might show Paul George would be something unique that we hadn't seen in Oklahoma City before no for sure and George hasn't played with a point guard you know as talented as uh Russell Westbrook either like George Hill is good but he's not Russ but the one thing to to think about with this thing is we think about Paul George as, you know, a game-changing defender that, you know, everyone remembers him, you know, locking down LeBron James when LeBron was on the heat. Like, those were really good matchups that were memorable. But this last season, going by our metric that uses shot placement and defender placement and, you know, how much you affect the shots that you guard, Paul George was 401st in the league in, you know, affecting opponent shots. Like, he was actually, you know, worse than league average. That probably goes a lot to how much he had to carry the team. Like every season, he's had to have more and more ISOs. He's just had to carry more of the offense. But uh, his defense this last season wasn't as good as it was in seasons past. So if we're expecting that, like we're going to have to see him bounce back a little. So let's talk a little bit about the East before we come back to the Warriors, I think, because the East has not brought on much new talent for the most part. Players have stayed where they where they already were, Kyle Lowry. But others have left the Eastern Conference to go to the West, Paul George being one of them. Paul Millsap has left Atlanta. And so 
it seems to me as though something is truly out of balance now. Unless, even if Gordon Hayward is to go to the Celtics, like something's off with these two conferences. Yeah, a quarter of last year's Eastern Conference All-Star roster has gone to the Western Conference (laughs) over this offseason. And this was a conference, the East, that only won 45% of its games against the West last year, which would work out to 37 wins over an 82-game schedule. So we've got this conference that was in the throes of a long run of not being as competitive. And now, you know, uh, so much of its stars have have gone to the other conference. It's crazy. I don't think there's any way that Adam Silver and the NBA can't entertain the notion of eliminating conferences and having yeah. just the top 16 teams make the playoffs. Because we're, we're in danger of this coming season seeing like perhaps upwards of like three to four Eastern Conference teams make the playoffs that like legitimately should not be in the playoffs at all. I mean, you could argue that the Cavs, Boston, and Toronto, and so if you're the NBA, you, you can't have a playoffs where like 30% of the teams really aren't even playoff teams. Well, we do have Otto Porter probably coming back to, you know, the Wizards on a max contract. Oh, thank so that might God. swing the conference. Otto Porter. <laughs> oh, my, that'll shift everything. But th- this is a this is obviously a thing and it's a self-perpetuating thing because I think like there hasn't been a stacked conference like this since like probably 08 when the Warriors missed the playoffs with 48 wins. Like I would expect we're going to be in that range again where you have like probably a 50-win team in the lottery. And that's just, you know, putting more and more talent out, out west. Like, this is a thing, like, that's a small marginal thing. But structurally, like, there, like, there aren't things in place to help out the east. Is it self-perpetuating as well because of the arms race that it takes to go after Golden State, for example? Right. When you have a team that good within one conference and not really one in the other conference to try and challenge in the same way, does it mean the Western Conference teams, if they feel like their window is now, they have to move on? on getting Paul George to come and cross the border. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like a magnet being like, okay, we kind of, it was shifting towards the West, and so the Rockets and the Spurs, and they were the ones that could actually shift Golden State, and they're the only ones going all in on chasing Golden State, therefore poaching talent, going out. So it seems to me it's like the West is a magnet. I also, I don't know how much I believe that this is just temporary, and that maybe five years from now we'll see it completely shift back to the east because i think there's something to be said too about like the center of the nba universe is los angeles like during the off season like 60 plus percent of the guys work out in la that doesn't mean they all only want to play for the clippers and lakers but like the western conference in the west is the nba central so i have a hard time believing that it's just going to shift in a few years back to the east coast so it seems like something structural has to be rearranged in the nba to accommodate that what what do conferences allow us in this day and age? Like, what is the Nothing. benefit of, of aside from scheduling ease, which I understand well, that's you don't probably want, the right. you don't only want players thing, to back and forth, right? And so, is that is it the case that that it, it would feel unfair to have sixteen seeds that aren't conference driven if you have people play within a conference during the regular season? Like, could you do? Could you get rid of conferences for the postseason without getting rid of conferences in the regular season, scheduling-wise? Uh, so, I mean, I don't know, because if you determine who makes the playoffs, like, if the schedule is imbalanced during the regular season and that determines who makes the playoffs, then you're going to fundamentally have weird yeah. out-of-whack matchups in the playoffs if it's based on something that's, you know, out-of-whack it becomes Previously. college football league. Yeah, almost. we're talking about specifically the Atlantic Division, which is just <laughs> puke, and the Southwest Division, which is you know all the Texas teams, Oklahoma, and yeah, that would be it would be out of whack. But 
I mean, it's not something that, you know, is insurmountable. Like we can tweak so that we don't see your division rivals four times. You might see them three times and play the Western teams a few more times. Like it's like it's possible to, to work that out. And we should say that this whole notion of conferences came about in like the 70s when I, I don't think they had the computing power necessarily to kind of work out schedules that minimize travel distance and maximize player rest and things like that. And so maybe the idea of a conference in the first place was just a shorthand for let's make it easier for these teams to travel around and, you know, not wear them all ragged. And now maybe there's a way to do that algorithmically that doesn't require us to kind of break things out in the conferences. But I don't know. I would... If 538 could come up with that algorithm that could, like, design the a schedule better, with a, yeah. without conferences, that would be and really And you can cool. crowdsource it, too. Yeah. I mean, you guys don't have to do it in-house, right? You could do it, like, fixing the NBA draft. That's true. You could have a competition. Ooh. Ooh. That's all I'm saying. That's good. We give the winner a T-shirt, and then we would just change the whole NBA, too. It would be, be good. <laughs> Here, you get a T-shirt. You've changed then, a multi-billion dollar I was going to say, also, when it came to conferences and divisions, the NBA also used to be a league where every team had a star. And so there were... It was like you wanted to be able to, if you're the Knicks, see, go to see Madison Square Garden and know who was coming into town so you could see the one star. Like, that's not the case anymore. Like, there is not a, just one star on each team and you have to have, like, this access point to see that star. And also, League Pass is a thing. Technology, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, this is also going back to my hobby horse, which is, one, the draft is immoral and we should, you know, abolish it. But two, if we're not going to, we should bring back the regional draft where that, like, kind of gives players an option of, like, where they want to play in the country or, like, specifically if they know, you know, which teams are terrible. When like, was that in place? Go in. in the 50s. <laughs> but bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> All right. We haven't talked about the Warriors. Should we just save that for, for a future pod? You're the host of this show, Chad. I think we're going to save it. Kyle, are you burning? Oh, we didn't talk about the Sixers. You want to talk about the Sixers, Kyle? Uh, we didn't talk about the Sixers. We were subtweeting Danny Ainge all last segment. We have to talk uh, about right. the Sixers because I live down right. the street you know from what? JJ Reddick. He Let's lives stay. in Dumbo. You're right. Let's stay. <laughs> Do you really? That's yes. good to know. Let's stay in the East. Kyle, what are the Celtics doing aside from waiting and waiting and waiting, whether it be on Hayward or to move on their draft picks? So this is a thing that is kind of driving me nuts. But So I understand they're still looking at Hayward. They didn't want to give up one of the Brooklyn picks for, for George before they knew that they can get Hayward and George because, you know, if they didn't get Hayward, George would just be a one-year rental. I get it. But at some point, the market is just the market. And there's this idea that, oh, so the Celtics can't stop the other players from, you know, making bad decisions or the other teams from making bad decisions. They're making, you know, reasonable offers, which it's funny that Danny Ainge always has the best offer. After the trade happens, but... <laughs> but nobody takes the best offer. Right. That just doesn't seem humanly logical, but okay. But at some point, the market is the market. The price is the price. And, like, that's why you have this stockpile. That's why you, you know, pile all these things up because you have to pay a premium to get these things. Because when you're amassing assets, the price to amass them is cheaper because you don't have a goal in, like, oh, we need a specific thing. We need a specific asset, like, to go win this title because this is what our team need is you just you know stockpiling things when you need one specific thing like you pay a premium to get it and like that's the thing that i think a lot of the nba hasn't really you know latched onto. there's just the idea that like oh the price of a first round pick is this well no not really like the price to get what you need is right. higher than what it is to get this asset that's you know right, at that point all 29 teams know you need this one thing and so they can hold you over the barrel to say we know you need that one thing and we have that one thing therefore there's a premium whereas the reverse being we have no one thing we need there's nothing so we're just collecting assets right now like the sixers have done and so does that does that suggest then that the warriors also were right to 
pay a, a premium essentially to keep the team together because they needed a, a, a bench player like Iguodala to elevate that second unit and to be able to play well with the first unit when, when necessary. Absolutely. I mean, it, the Iguodala thing is the same as Tristan Thompson's, you know, $52 million contract a few, uh, few years ago, where when you're a team that, you know, is on the cusp or whatever, like, and you already have your, you know, core pillars locked in and you can extend them as long as you need. Yeah, you're going to pay a premium for your role players. You're going to pay a premium for those last pieces of the thing. And also, like, it's a scarcity thing where there are only so many Paul Georges that you can add to the roster that become available to be traded. Because, like, a lot of times they're, you know, just happy on their team. Their teams are happy with them. So, like, it was this rare instance where there were a few guys who were up to be traded. But also, and I think we've talked about this before on the show, they were some of the last superstar-level guys who were on pre-TV, like, Mm -hmm. balloon money where Paul George is making, I think, 19 and change this year, less than Victor Oladipo. Um, Jimmy Butler is making like 16 and change this year. That makes them much, much easier to slot in than a guy who's going to be coming in making $35 million a year. Of course, the flip side of uh, that for George was that knowing that when he walks after the end of the season, he's going to want uh, a huge payday. But that was probably going to be true either way, no matter what. Right. It's just getting him in under the cap um, and then like extending him after that. And one additional thing about the Iguodala deal to me is – the risk-averse nature that you have when you have won. Like, you're willing to pay Iguodala maybe eight, ten million more than he's worth be- than another guy at that role because you don't know what that other guy is like. You haven't had him on your team. You don't know whether he's going to be good in the locker room. It's like with Iguodala, do we want to pay more for a guy who's maybe getting older and not producing at the level he was when he was NBA Finals MVP? Sure, because we now we have continuity and that's invaluable. And especially when the luxury tax maybe doesn't matter as much to you as before you won a couple championships right. and had all this extra revenue coming in. And as a result, you're willing to pay the tax on keeping that guy around. And I wrote about this today that, you know, once you reach the 60 win, 65 win, approaching that 70 win threshold in terms of how much, you know, talent is on your roster, each additional win boosts your odds of winning the championship in sort of an abnormal way compared to the same win that would put you from, you know, at 51 wins instead of 50. And so Iguodala might have made like the last three and a half wins above replacement that took Golden State from 61 to 64 and a half. That's uh, actually like a really huge boost to their probability of winning the championship next year even if Iguodala only produces three and a half wins it's an outsized impact compared to uh, you know teams in another position on the win curve just going back to Boston for a second so one last thing is we talked about scarcity a little bit but it's also surplus and so Boston has five point guards on the roster and they seem you know to value all of them as you know significant trade chips that you know they want to get value back for and, you know, having all those point guards is one reason why they traded the first overall pick instead of taking Markel Fultz. They had that locked down. But so does the rest of the league. Like, there, we've seen, like, there are a lot of free agent point guards this year, and there hasn't been, you know, as much of a market for them. Kyle Lowry went back to the Raptors after there were reports that, you know, he kind of didn't want to go back to the Raptors, but there just wasn't a market for it. And there's this surplus of point guards in the league now where maybe, you know, it might be easier if, you know, you are really good at finding and scouting point guards to go amass a bunch of them, but... You know, the league doesn't need them and isn't going to trade for them, kind of the same way that Sam Hinkie's 76ers amassed all these centers and the league doesn't really need centers right now. Speaking of the Sixers, Kyle, very quickly, before the end of this segment, you're excited. You think that this Sixers team is a real team? I think they're going to be fun because they've, you know, attempted to put together a real team. They signed J.J. Redick to a one-year deal, signed Amir Johnson. They have, 
Ben Simmons coming back. They have Markel Fultz. They have, like, a real starting five, a real bench. They're putting a real product on the floor, and, like, they have a bunch of cool passers. Like, I think it's going to be fun. Yep. There's your fourth East playoff team. That's right. That's not really a playoff team, but they're going to make it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's finally leave it there. Thanks for chatting about uh, so much happening in the NBA. There's still are a couple dominoes to fall, and if they do, we will uh, hopefully be covering them in the weeks to come. And now time for our significant digit, when a telling number from the world of sports is brought to us. Today I am doing the bringing. The significant digit is 73.5. That's the world record for the number of hot dogs consumed within the major league eating uh, uh, circuit. This was done by Joey Chestnut in a qualifying match Last year, leading into the 2016 Nathan's Hot Dog, what do you call it? Eat off? Is that eating contest? It's just eating a hot contest, dog eating yeah. contest at, in Coney Island, the annual Fourth of July treat. We're taping this on Monday. Tomorrow's Tuesday. I've been to the hot dog eating contest, guys. Oh wow! And um, it's there's something called the splash zone in the front. <laughs> you can imagine what that's yeah. for. They have a tarp down. Yeah, it's um, it's really an American experience. Kate, you look disgusted. Mortified. Yeah. I do have a question, though. What's the time limit for that 73 hot dogs eaten? Yeah. I mean, I had um, the two in 10 minutes. 10 so. minutes. Oh. 73 and a half. Yeah, sorry. I think I misspoke earlier at the top of the show. I think I said 15 minutes. It's 10 minutes. 10 minutes. 73 and a half dogs by Joey Chestnut. That's not the record in a, in a final. I believe that record is right around 70. Um, Why would you get credit for a half? Like, you either ate the hot dog or you didn't. Right? I, I'm not sure. Well, I wonder if they ate the hot dog but not the bun or something like that, if that uh, counts, because mm, they do eat them separately. Half, yeah. no, my favorite is actually the wings because they do that by weight. Like you have the, the wings on like a scale and then you take it off and you eat it and you put it on the other yeah, scale. What if it's a particularly dense bone, though? You put it on the other scale, I think. Oh, oh they like tear it out, basically. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's interesting. I also would rather eat buffalo wings than hot dogs if you gave me 10 minutes. I was perusing Joey Chestnut's Twitter feed recently, and he had just done an ice cream sandwich. I uh, would rather eat ice cream sandwiches than wings or hot dogs. He said that the 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 temperature was it was so cold that his head and throat began. His head hurt, obviously, like Mm -hmm. an ice cream, you know, a, a brain freeze. But his throat started to constrict, and then the pain he said that he felt for ice cream sandwiches was vastly more than for hot dogs. Fair, fair enough. I would just say that um, all competitive eaters um, are very blunt about, we'll say, the aftermath of their yes, competitive eating. Yes. And uh, and that is one thing where eating buffalo wings seems much, much worse than <laughs> eating hot dogs. That could be true. Got to think long term, Kate. I need a full picture before I make a decision here. I'll get back to you guys on which one I'm choosing. All right. I think uh, on that note, let's uh, let's close the show. Kate Fagan, thanks for talking about eating and sports. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne. Thanks, Chad. Kyle Wagner. Thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Alice Wilder is our intern. We got production assistance from Tony Chow and Martin Olimabu. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app on iTunes, of course, as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.